my guest today is Janice Gobert. She's a friend of mine that I've known for a long time, and I'm excited for today's conversation, Janice, because we met before the company was a company, when it was still an idea, still in development, still coming to be real. And now you have clients, you're running it, it's a business. Um, so I, I can't wait to catch up and hear what all's happened since then. But I think before we go down that road, just what is uh, Apprentice? What is it? What does it do? Why did you create it? You know, what, why does the company exist? And what do you guys do, first of all, just so everyone knows what we're talking about for the Great. rest of the time? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so Apprentice, the name comes from the verb apprendre, which is French, um, which means to learn. It also means to learn in Latin, uh, Spanish, Italian, many languages. Um, and because we're a learning tech company, it seemed like a really good name. Um, so that's why we chose Apprentice. Uh, I formed the company with two former graduate students of mine from WPI, Mike Sao Pedro, who is the CTO, and Cameron Betts, who's our managing director. And um, we really formed the company because there was a real push on innovation and tech transfer here at WPI when I used to be a professor. And, you know, we had some ideas. And also the U.S. Department of Education and the National Science Foundation also were very interested in, in us productizing what we have for helping students and teachers um, enact the next generation science standards, which is now sort of accepted in 40 plus states in the United States. And what do you mean by what you have productizing that? What, what was it that you had? Right. So what we have on what we've developed and we have patented technology on um, three or four patents now is software that does real-time assessment of students' um, com competencies at doing science, how they form hypotheses, how they collect data, how they interpret data, how they warrant their claims, how they describe their experiments. And so while they're working in a virtual environment, we're mm -hmm. tracking everything they do, every mouse click, every selection, everything they type, everything they, um, the choices they make, etc., while they work, real-time machine-learned algorithms are extracting, distilling log files, and then creating actionable uh, data points for the teacher, actionable alerts for the teacher, but also personalizing the experience to the student. So it's like, oh, you know, Johnny, um, you're not testing the hypothesis you said you were going to test, right? Because real-time instruction is really important to deep learning. For sure. I mean, yeah. So when it's happening in real time, how is the information relayed when we know Johnny needs extra attention or Johnny needs to move to the next level? Or how is that? How does the teacher know? Right. So, um, so Inkits is the name of the student um, platform. Inkits is logging everything in real time. And then uh, Rex, who's a pedagogical agent, digital agent, jumps up on the screen and might say, Johnny, you're not testing the hypothesis you said you were going to test. Or Johnny, you're changing too many variables at once. Or Johnny, how will you know about the effects of X on Y when you change so many variables across trials? So like a virtual tutor helping, helping Johnny move a through the, the exercise? So a virtual tutor but also now our teacher platform, which is our newest invention called Ink Blotter, um, gives this actionable, uh, actionable alerts on, the, uh, on a dashboard that's on an iPad or iPhone. For the teacher. For the teacher. Okay. The teacher can literally walk around the class and see, oh, Johnny needs help because Johnny doesn't understand the difference between an independent and a dependent variable. Yeah. Wow, 70% of my class is having that trouble right now 
stop the class. Sure. So she or he can stop the class before kids get down the road collecting all this data that's not even relevant to the hypothesis they specified. That's really cool. What age group kids are we talking about? So we started with middle school and we go up now through uh, mid high school. And we've done a little bit of, you know, backtracking into elementary, but mostly middle school and uh, ninth and 10th grade. Okay. Yeah. That's really cool. Science. Uh, This is all science. I could, I could, well, yeah, it's a part of learning for every student. They need some science background. Right. And I think you could probably apply it to things outside of science too. No, the technology, the way that you help the children move along. Well, yes. I mean, uh, I mean, maybe down the road, just theoretically, if it's, if it's building them through, the idea and then the execution, you, right. could, you could break it apart a different way if it were, say, for writing or language. Yeah, and we do score their writing using natural language processing algorithms as well and compare it to what they do, which is a new, newest, uh, one of the newest innovations that we have. What, what do you hear from teachers? So teachers um, absolutely love this product. I imagine because, um, I mean, Johnny probably doesn't want to raise his hand if he's correct. having difficulty, right? Yes, you're absolutely correct, especially in middle school and high school. I mean, we were all Johnny sometimes, and we all didn't yeah. want to raise our hand. Of course. Yeah. Nobody wants to say, I need help. Right. So now the teacher can say, okay, I'm going to let Rex get him, or you know what, I might walk over because I haven't been there yet today, right? Yeah, that's really cool. Teachers have literally called me on my cell phone and said, hey, because my, my number's on the, uh, on the website, and say, hey, I used this technology for the first time today, and it was the best instructional experience of my life. How are they finding it? Like, I guess the question behind my question is, it's schools are really governed or really tightly governed in what they put in the classrooms, right? So how do you how do you help get it into the schools? Do you have to go through the school board? Do you have teachers that advocate for it and bring it forward? Yeah, there's multiple pathways. Uh, we offer re, uh, free trials and then, you know, hope that those teachers become champions for us. Um, you know, we have sales. Uh, we've actually touched down in 50 states now. No kidding. Um, in terms That's awesome. of, yeah, research, uh, trials and sales. We have a very low churn rate, so we're very excited about that. Um so we, we get some teachers as champions. Sometimes someone at the district might reach us. Sometimes someone at the state might reach us. Um, a variety of ways, um, you know, we, we go to these teacher conferences. We have a booth there typically. Um, so, you know, lots have, of different ways. When you have the booth and you're talking, is it, is it teachers that you're talking? Is it mainly teachers that would then go advocate to not just go, but like, are you talking with administrators or primarily teachers to then bring the conversation to both. administrators? Yeah. Both. So however, however you can start the conversation. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. The, it's a long process to get into a classroom or if you do the free trials, it help. Uh, the free trial helps, you know, it's a very long sales cycle. Um, education is, long I bet cycle. it is. Cause they, not only does it just take long to move the pieces, but you're hoping they vet everything pretty carefully because it's going to be teaching children. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole process is a little bit lengthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, that being said, um, when I think when, when districts want it, they move pretty quick. That's good. I mean, it's, it's cool to see you touch down in all 50 states. I mean, that's that's a lot of movement. That's really excellent. Yes. Some, some um, you know, international work, too, and starting to touch down in different countries, which is really exciting. Before we go deeper into that, I want to rewind because you guys, you, you came together different than the storybook startup. Most people talk about being that you came together on a campus with two of your former students, right? Who I've met. They're both Correct. great guys. Yeah. Um, so you didn't, it, it wasn't the classic Silicon Valley tech startup story, right? It's a professor and then two of your former teachers, I mean, students and you guys. How, 
How does it go from, you know them and they're your students, and you know that their strengths, like one being technologically sound, or uh, and I don't remember Cameron's background, but was it Cameron? Correct. Right. But he also is a computer, computer science background. Oh, so yeah. they're both strong computer science. Yeah. So how do you, how does that start? Do you guys just have an idea that you start kicking around in a classroom? Do you, you know, how, how does it even start to have the conversation to then snowball into a, an idea and a prototype and a company? Right. Well, this is part of a, a sort of a longer, uh, longer story, but, um, yeah. So I'd Good. Been, I had been funded. I want to I I actually see how it came to life. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, so I'd been funded by the National Science Foundation in you know, the 90s. I started with my first work with the National Science Foundation and had you know, a good history of grants through them. And, um, and then I started in on grants with the U.S. Department of Education. Now, both the NSF and the U.S. Department of Education have the SBIR program, Small Business Innovation Research Programs, where they're trying to take up their portfolio of projects that are developed in universities and spin them out into, you know, products sure. to make it sustainable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was um, tech transfer offices sprung up in universities all over the place once the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, you know, came into effect. Um, so anyway, I mean, they, there was an interest in us productizing what we had um, because we had really nice, really nice effects. Um, they loved the machine learning aspect of it. Um, and they saw it as something with legs, I think, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so they... You know, they had had a couple conversations with me about that. I was very interested in it because I'm a fairly pragmatic individual. Not all academics are pragmatic, you know, uh, which is fine. But I'm a fairly pragmatic individual. And, and you know, the, the lofty theories that happen in academia about education and the reality of regular classrooms is very different mm-hmm. and can be very different. And I think in that field in particular, there's too much of a chasm, right? Like, you know, think about research in medicine. You know, it's not like we have a new treatment for cancer in some that's discovered in some university and it takes 10 years to roll out. Right. I don't think that's true. Right. We hope not. I could be wrong, but I don't think it's true, right? Right. So, um, so education, there, there tends to be too much of a lag time f- yeah. for my personal... You know, for the idea to be in the classrooms. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, well, it's too, notoriously slow, right? It's slow. And the other thing is, is that some of the publishing companies are not necessarily um, putting out materials that are, you know, based on solid research mm-hmm. and theoretical framing. Yep. And so that's why there's a real need here to productize things that are research based. Well, you can see, I mean, anyone that, pays any attention can see how slow that the, at least in public schools, how slow the machine works, right? My kids brought home uh, from, I don't know, whatever section of class, my kids are elementary school, but they brought home the old uh, food pyramid. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not even approved anymore by the FDA <laughs> and the school's teaching it. You know, right. it, uh, it's, I don't know why they haven't been given a new one. They didn't get a new PDF. I mean, I don't know what it is, but you, you see that come home and you're like, you know, what, what's the rest of the stuff they're going over all day. Right. So yeah, it's, it's a, that's why I was so curious about how hard it is to for you to get in the classroom because mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a notoriously slow well, grind. Teachers are desperate for this kind of technology. The, yeah, the teachers right. want to teach. The teachers are desperate for it, and and I think that administrators are pretty responsive to teachers' um, 
wanting the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's my experience. And you know, when we, you know, when we um, trial in a school, what we often do, and this doesn't typically involve me, although it sometimes might is go over the data with the teacher and the administrator. And the administrator says, oh my God, here's these students from special education who are getting incredibly strong at something that, you know, they were really poor at. Yeah, and, and we typ- didn't know how to fix. Right, and typically with, you know, strategy training software, just kind of a writ large, the skilled kids get even better. And the kids who are not skilled right. kind of- The gap widens. The gap can widen and they just peter along. Whereas our results for special education population are actually really nice. So that's great, right? That is I'm, great. I'm a former school psychologist. Uh, so I really, you know, you know, the whole reason I'm, I'm in this business is that I recognize the learning difficulties that many, many students have. And they can be extremely strong in one respect or along the lines of these science practices that are part of the next generation science standards that I referred to Mm -hmm. forming a hypothesis, collecting data, doing the experiment, interpreting data, warranting their claims, and then writing in what's called a claim evidence reasoning statement. Now what you have um, discovered in your, during your experiment or verified during your experiment. Mm -hmm. So part of our technology is and this this really is a very intuitive point but part of our technology can identify those kids who are really good at the doing of science but then they get to the point where they have to articulate in words what they have understood mm. and they fall down on the job for sure right for sure now from from the teacher's assessment point of view that student will be a false negative if the teacher's relying on what the kid is writing mm-hmm. the student is writing yep Uh, conversely, you could have a kid who's just parroting what he's read or heard, right? And writing that, and he's a false positive. Without internalizing any piece of it. The teachers, yeah, we have data that shows that students do that and they don't even have the data they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Literally don't even have the data that they're talking about. So I wrote about this in US News and World Report about the gaps at the tails, right? Your science, call him a science genius who Uh can't articulate what he knows in words, but he can do all these really rich and deep things in the the doing of science, forming hypotheses, collecting data, interpreting data, et cetera, versus the kid who is just parroting, right? And that's why our international comparison scores are actually quite poor. You have a lot of superficial learning. So our technology is not designed for the teacher to go over to a, a student and say, hey, I gotcha, you must have been cheating. Right? Right. I really hope it's not being used that way. Um, but for the teacher to say, hey, you know, you know, Judy, or hey, Sammy, right? You wrote some scientifically accurate things here. Now let's go back and pair it with a rich experiment to tie that sort of experiential knowledge to what you've written. Mm-hmm. And with the, the other student, the quote-unquote science genius, right? It's like, wow, look how well you've done. She can show him on the, on the iPad, on the, on the um, scoring that she's getting in real time, the assessment. Look how well you've done all, all these aspects. Now what we need to you know, get better at is forming your claim evidence reasoning statement in the writing, mm-hmm. which you have all the other pieces. And so getting back to administrators and teachers, they love this because they actually have to submit um, scores for students' competencies on these different practices. Mm-hmm. And so they really need a way to assess students. Right? Yeah, and they can start to see gaps. And, and, they can and see the gaps. more than, I mean, maybe I'm being 
the optimist that I am, but more than they need a way to assess students, they want to teach the students. And if you can see the gaps, you can see where you need to teach, where you can right. get to supplement their education that's, and, and make the better rounded kid, right? Right. And in our alerting platform, they get an actionable alert. So it's not just, oh, you know, Adam's having this problem. It's Adam's having this problem because he doesn't understand the difference between an independent or dependent variable because he's interpreting the independent variable in the table and not the dependent variable in the table. Well, and he's having it now. You can, go, you can go intervene and you can talk with them and help Adam figure out how to do something differently or look at the problem a different way. And I think that's really important. Not You don't get a month-end report that says, you know, which is still good, you know, and you can still help move them forward when you right. find out he or her needs this work. But if you can go interrupt the now right. and do some active learning, I think that for me, that's much more efficient for me to learn. Of course. And so this, this um, whole approach is called performance assessment. And when you think about it, right, if you were like ten, uh, tennis, getting, getting coaching on your tennis, you wouldn't say, well, remember like three weeks ago when you put your arm too far back? Like that would just be crazy. Right. right? It's, a, it's kind of a funny analogy, but it makes sense. It does. So you mentioned that you were a school psychologist. Right. I was and, trained as a school psychologist uh, at McGill um, when I went to grad school there. And you were also, I don't know, if, what, what's your PhD in? Cognitive science. And, and at WPI, you were working in... Learning sciences right. and social science, yeah. And, and computer science. I was cross-appointed. And then CEO of uh, Prendis helping people learn. So it's a lot of hats is kind of what I was digging out. Right. Um, do you think that lends towards the entrepreneurial life or at least the always after new things? Is that, would you say that's part of your personality? I know it is for me. I need to be chasing shiny new things once in a while too. Right. Well, I mean, there's a real... Everything is under the same rubric for me. Sure, but right. but any one of them could have been a lifelong career and and fulfilling yeah. for a lot of people. Like you could have been a school psychologist, you could be a tenured professor, you could be the founder of a business, but you're all right. three in a row there. Right. <laughs> well, that takes a special kind of crazy. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, uh, I liked. I get. I wouldn't say I get bored easily, but I like to move the needle to the next level. You like to fill time. I don't mean that in a useless way. I mean that some people really value downtime. Mm. Me, I personally don't. I, I value being busy. I don't right. like to do busy work, but I like to be busy. I like to be working on something, whether it's a personal right. hobby or playing with my kids or a sport or, or my job or my work here. But I like to be actively engaged with something. I don't, I'm not, downtime doesn't relax me. It, it more freaks me out. Yeah, I don't need much downtime. Like recharging my battery, that happens very fast for me. Yeah. I almost feel recharged by doing things. Like that's what makes me feel right. better. Right. Yeah. So. Do you, um, it's, it's such an interesting part with the, the multiple jobs. That, that, that part fascinates me. And I know that they all, they all kind of intertwine and play together. When you were, but I'm going to rewind. So back to, coming up with Apprentice. When, so Apprentice doesn't exist, and you're talking to Mike and Cam. How does it go from not being a thing to having the information that people want to productize? And then how long does it take? Like, how, Is it a discussion and then some data points and a couple experiments, or does it take some time and you're, you're proving theories? Like, how, how do you go to the point where you're like, we have something that we can create here? Right. Um. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question and one which I could give you an extremely long answer, but I won't. I'll give you kind of a medium long answer. So I had been doing work in this area for um, quite a long time. 
um, and this area, I mean, people's use of simulations in science to understand science. Mm-hmm. And tracking using the log files that are generated, like the cookies, kind of the cookies that your computer sure. generates, but very, very fine grained. I had been doing work on log files for a very long time, since even 2001, something like that. I mean, very long time. Yeah. And um, because I'm a cognitive scientist, process data is really what we're interested in. And so um, I, I was recruited to WPI. I came here and ended up, you know, uh, co-founding the learning sciences program here. And because my interest and my expertise was in how people learn from very rich simulations in science Mm -hmm. and the need for assessment data, it kind of coalesced into developing something that was really innovative. And, you know, I'm, I have a very techie mind, even though I'm not a, a computer scientist by training. I have was, a very is it just something you really have always been drawn to? So you kind of brought the, the two together? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I had worked with technical people since the late 90s uh, when I used to be at Concord Consortium as a, re- as a senior research scientist. So, uh, you know, working with technical people and thinking about things in very fine-grained detail, right? is something that, you know, lends itself well to operationalizing variables at a very fine-grained level. Yeah. So, so then, um, you the know, I, I had grants and, you know, I realized, wow, we could really productize something here. And the U.S. Department of Education was simultaneously interested in us potentially doing that. So, you know, going to, say, their principal investigators meeting, as I just did last week, you know, they would have these sessions where they would talk with people like me who had had series of grants saying, you know, what do you have to productize? We want to productize to make things uh, sustainable for teachers and students rather than a grant ending. And then the technology goes down. The teacher logs on in September and goes, oh, no. Right. Where's that technology? I love that. Yeah. Right. I used it for five years. Well, it's gone. Yeah. The so the U.S. Ended. the U.S. government does not have really... Um, they have a, an interest in productizing those things to make it sustainable for teachers and students. And they yeah, that recognize makes sense. that. So that there's someone with a reason to keep it going. I mean, it just, it's from a business standpoint, it makes sense. Right. Do you think, um, as you start to think about productizing it and bring it, putting it together, was there an advantage, disadvantage being that you were on a campus and you're on a, an innovative school that has a technical uh, background to mm. the school here at WPI, was there an advantage to getting people together, to creating um, like the first iteration of what a product might be? Or was there, a, or was it like holding you back? Was there a difference? Like the coming from the campus environment, and I know we talked a little bit beforehand and we'll talk again about going from that startup phase to running the business is different. And most people, you know, want to replace the, the professor, but before you get to that point in creating it, was there an advantage to being in, a, in an EDU environment? Oh, yeah. And what is it? Because I don't come from that background. Yeah, absolutely. There was an advantage to being uh, on a campus, um, and this campus in particular, I think, uh, because here, you know, one of the things that WPI is extremely good at is uh, the intersection of technology with, with um, social sciences and 
biological sciences, et cetera. Um, you know, in fact, every student here as an undergrad has to do a, a project that's society, science, and technology mm. um, together, right? And they have to do that. So I got all these undergrads who wanted to do this. And, you know, I had graduate students from computer science, some of whom, like Mike Salpedro, moved over and actually has a PhD in learning sciences instead of uh, computer science. Mm -hmm. Um, so being on a campus like this, I think really helped me do that. I imagine so. And that's really cool. That WPI has them do that. I mean, it's kind of like, maybe you won't dedicate your career to the greater good, but you're going to have to think about it before you start your career. Right. That's yeah. pretty, that's, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. It'd be a good thought exercise. Yeah. WPI definitely has, um, a real strength in that area. And, you know, this is a small undergraduate institution, primarily instit undergraduate institution. But, you know, the thing about undergrads is they're really, uh, they're really all in, you know, when they're in it, they're yeah. all in. Yeah. And they're not going anywhere. Yeah. They're really excited by it. Well, I, I mean, mean grad, grad students done, but are too. Right? Yeah. But um, yeah, so it's been, I mean, some people like Michael Brigham, uh, he works for, um, he works for me now, but he did his, his, this project that I was talking about, he did his project with me. Mm -hmm. Raha Musavi is a PhD student, former PhD student of mine, is now has a full-time job at MIT. She was with me as an undergrad doing one of these um, projects, these uh, science, technology, and society projects. Went to Brown, did her master's, and came back and did her PhD with me. That's cool. Right? I uh, met some of that. I don't know if I met her, but I met some of your PhD team, and they were all like really that struck me. I mean, this was years ago, but they were all really into it. Like you, you guys, yeah. it almost felt like you were, a, um, it's a lame example, but it almost felt like you were this little startup company. Like there was an energy to it as opposed to an academic classroom right. or something. Yeah. I think that that's a, um, something that is not a trivial aspect of starting a business or running a team is that you have to leverage, you, you can't take people where they don't want to go. So you have to look at what their goals are, look at what their background is and their skill set, and look at where they want to go as well as where you want to go and dovetail those things together mm -hmm. because you cannot take people where they don't want to go. They will. And you don't want to be dragging people kicking and, and screaming I don't want to drag team. people. Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, um, so one of the things that I think is really, um, I won't say unique about my group, but is when people come to it, they immediately feel it, is that we are super tight. Everybody's super tight. Everybody's very creative. And, and we, open. I can attest to it because I met them and, and yeah. I felt that. Yeah, very open. And the other thing is that because we have such an interdisciplinary team from, you know, computer science, uh, teachers, graphic designers, psychologists, uh, former teachers, mathematicians. I mean, we have a very, very broad team. You have to respect each other's um, expertise. Yeah. And you also have to be willing to say, I don't understand what you mean by X. Well, it also explain this to me. It's right? kind of the definition of how to build an interesting and deep team, right? You have all these people with different backgrounds that become uh, eventually feeling safe to talk to one another and ask for help and ask for clarification. And once you can kind right. of kick that door open and you've got people with all these variable backgrounds, you can, you can just go so, so much deeper than if you have a room full of like-minded people, the same, Absolutely. the same background. That, and I, that, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of exciting just talking about it. You think about the possibility with a team right. like that, as opposed to, right. You know, 
what you get fed typically. Yeah, and people create people get hired by based on the resume criteria, and you get fifteen of the same resumes to create a team to fill position X, and that's the way it goes in like ninety percent of larger corporations or, or places because it's just data. You're right. you're you're part of data streaming into the building and then streaming right. back out, but it. It's not like that at the smaller level, which is what makes it so exciting. Right. And creating a culture where someone doesn't have to feel like they can't say, I don't understand what you mean by this. And I, you know, when I onboard new people, I often say, you know, assume I assume that I think you can read my mind because I'm not going to tell you everything you need to know because I started this in this line of work in or this platform in 2007 yeah so i mean we're 12 years in so i can't go back to square one so i expect you to come to me with questions uh, i'm going to onboard you in a way that i think you can come into the group and get started but you're going to have to come and figure out what you need to ask like a relay doing. race start running before the baton and just keep up <laughs> do your best right. <laughs> figure it out <laughs> well know? it works right because then you can see sink or swim too and if people are willing to put in the work and try to catch up then they're probably going to do all right and if right. they're not then they're not and you, right. you can weed out those those folks um the the 12 years and and moving along that i'm wondering so in in like the typical startup scenario you get some funding and you've got a timeline because you've got investors uh pressuring you to put something out the door or a smaller business that you know like sometimes i like to step outside of entrepreneur because it's too flashy of a term and i like business owners just talking to people who have made something happen right Mm -hmm. which could be any size business or any size thing but so a lot of times they're bootstrapping and they're just they've, they've got a They've got to turn a profit at some point and that hopefully sooner than later, because otherwise they don't have any money. There's no, there's no food on the table, right? Being here at, were there grants that were able to help the company to come along and there's the student population to use. I mean, it sounds like it was quite like a really cool incubator that doesn't like, there's a gotta be a real benefit to that where you seem, did you have a little bit more, room to breathe and to create something right instead of right and ready and just fast out the door? I think so. Um, and also the research that's done by my research team at, at Rutgers, where I am now, I'm a, a full professor at Rutgers, um, helps undergird the efficacy of the, of the pro, uh, product, which is important. They're doing research on the product's use itself? Right, yeah. exactly. And implementation of it and, you know, very interesting one-on-one studies and it's extremely rich for them and that and the the graduate students that i have have i think you know incredible training because of the involvement of this platform right they're doing research on this platform but the conversations that we have as a team writ large are really rich and deep yeah right for sure so that research, though, is being done by the Rutgers students. So that's Rutgers research. So it's independent of the company, which that's is correct. I can see being beneficial because right. it's not it's not slanted. It's not it's not you, it's not the company doing its own research and guiding it. It's scientific research done right. by an organization that's a respect respectable organization, and then you can leverage that information to make the product better. Right. Exactly. So how how does that cycle work? How do you? Um, I mean, it's a broad question you can just make it smaller but you're obviously you've got a product but you're right. you're iterating it right it's always right. getting better and you're always putting new i'm assuming new um features. new features into it and yeah new stu- new bug squashes so as this research is happening are you are there new ideas coming up new ways to handle problems is it solving things you didn't know about five years ago i mean you said it's 12 years old right so 
It's probably not the same product that it was 12 years ago. Oh, no. But also, we own, we started the company in, the product launch was really about 2015. We started the company in 2012 in mm -hmm. order to apply for these small business innovation research grants mm -hmm. through the U.S. Department of Education. And Mike Salpedro, the CTO of Apprentice, uh, fronts those grants. He's the PI on those grants. Um because I, as a professor, cannot be the PI on those grants. What's PI? Uh, pr uh, principal investigator. Okay. Right? So he and I, you know, we might write those grants. Um, and he sort of takes, bears the brunt of writing them for Apprentice. Mm -hmm. I write them for our research at the university. But you can see how the tech gets maintained. The technical black backbone gets maintained by the company. And when there's a really interesting research question, you know, um, the technical team at the university might, you know, in a sandbox kind of make a change. And mm -hmm. we tinker with that and figure out what is it going to tell us about student learning, about uh, teacher implementation. And those features might, in the end, find their way in. But, you know, these two things run in parallel. Right? It's, it, it feels like a really good way to stay curious, too, to stay like, to stay enjoying the iteration and the, and the, the journey. So it's, you're a, you're a company with customers and operating like a corporation, I assume. But at the same time, you're a little bit outside of that because you've got that the higher ed aspect to it with the research going on where it's kind of like you're chasing something that you're passionate about and you're getting the opportunity to continually drive it forward, which is your background anyway in, in the education and the, the cognitive abilities of the people you're interfacing with, right? Right. So that, that's got to just what I'm getting at, I guess, is that's got to feel really freeing where a lot of people end up, at least in the beginning phase between founding a company and ha running a company, they end up feeling chased or mm -hmm. boxed in and like they have to, they have to react where you mm -hmm. kind of like opened up your own playground. Right. And I think it works, it works in another way, the way that you're talking about, it works in that way. And we've been very successful at the company in getting small business innovation research grants, um, which has been really great. And we've also gotten, you know, research grants, which has also been great. But the other way um, that it works is, you know, when you're productizing something, you can't wait for a, a solution that's going to work 99.99% of the time. You have to be willing to say, you know, don't let the perfect interfere with the good. Sure. Right? Yeah. That's the famous Voltaire, mm -hmm. uh, Vol Voltaire quote. Um and imagine, and this, this aspect, frankly, about um, some things frustrates me in academia and drives me because if we had a cure to cancer that worked, you know, 90% of the time, would we say, you know what, we're not going to release it yet. We're going to wait for that other 10%. I hope they'd release it at 70% or before. I mean, right? it's, every time it works, it's good. <laughs> so the thing is, is that I think because academia rewards excellence. Sometimes that culture can interfere with the development of a product. Um, that being said, our algorithms are, are highly accurate mm -hmm. when compared to human scoring, which we're very proud of. And that's why we have the patents we have and the efficacy data we have, et cetera. But, you know, through that lens, you have to think about taking what you know and turning it into the best product that you can. And then, you know, let basically teachers vote with their feet, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that's, I think, a really important thing. So that, that partnership 
in quotes, between the company and the university works in two ways. Yeah, I can see that. Do you, do you think the, just going back to something you said earlier on your team, when you make it um, safe to ask questions and to not know things, that, that's something that's come up uh, with most people I talk to is one of the lessons you end up learning is that failure is okay, but failure followed by action or followed by learning or followed by like, doing something about that failure, not complacency and that failure is just okay, I'll continue to fail, right? Because there's a difference. Your goal is still to succeed, but you have to, there, there's some lumps you take along the way that you have to learn that it's okay to fail, where many times that's almost cliche and people say, yeah, of course, you've got to fail to succeed, but it's not okay in our culture and it's not, it's, people say it, but it's not real. Nobody wants to fail. People don't want to admit they were wrong and American culture is still much stronger in covering your tracks and, and not admitting to the failure. But everyone I've talked to that owns a business has just had to become comfortable with it. So it's like you have to, you take those knocks and you get used to the failure. Do you think you can help get there with your team? Cause you make that safe environment or do you think people have to figure that out for themselves? Um, well, I think sometimes it's a team effort where we're, we're working on something as a team and testing it and going, oh, this didn't work as expected. Why? We don't think about that as failure, right? But um, sometimes it's an individual person where, you know, I might be peeling off thinking, okay, I'm really going to, you know, knock my you know, head against a wall for a while and think about this problem mm -hmm. and how to solve it. And, you know, and it, it's also... There's a lot of individual differences in how people like to think and like to work, and it's sometimes specific to the piece that they work on. So our user experience, you know, they use a lot of storyboarding, like Kim and, and Pat Rowan, they use a lot of storyboarding, and um, Charity Stoudenrouse works with, with them as well on this, and looking what that visual might look like, and how might that impact the student? How might that impact the teacher? Because that is, you know, part of what user experience is. Mm -hmm. um, Mike Sao Pedro, Mike Brigham might write code and say, well, let's see how this is going to work. Let's see how this is going to hang together. And, then, you know, that has a specific kind of uh, path because it's code. For me, you know, I do a lot of drawing. I, I do a lot of reading, thinking, and the way in which I kind of uh, seem to solve problems is, is I like to kind of hover around and circle around like a bird. Circle around, circle around. And you, I read really broadly, extremely broadly, and read this and read that from computer science and read this from, you know, interaction journals and read this from psychology journals and 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 look at other things. And then I'm like, this is the solution. This is the solution to this problem. Now let's implement it. And I've, I've been able to do that a few times. And I think it's sort of how my mind works. Mm. And um, it's a very creative part of my job that I love. I mean, I love what I do, right? Clearly. All yeah. the things that you do, <laughs> they all tie together. The, um, when I saw you all last, you guys all sat together at WPI and you've since moved on to Rutgers where you're teaching. How do you, how does the company come together? Do you have offices? Do you guys get together once in a while? Is it mostly remote? How do you, how are you running things nowadays? It's mostly remote, but, um, I'm, you know, I'm in Massachusetts now. Uh, Mike was in DC. Um, we were together last week in DC. 
So um, Kevin might come down. So it's mostly remote and we have a, a whole team meeting every Monday. I had it in fact, just before you came in um, where we keep it sort of everybody apprised of what's coming up, you know, down the pike, okay. you know, two weeks and one week and kind of like a stand up. Here's where we're at for everybody's exactly. responsibilities and who needs to do what, and mm-hmm. et cetera. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but we're mostly remote. Yeah. Cool. It's a, it's, it seems to be the way of the world. If you're not selling brick and mortar, then the it, right. it just it promotes so much more time and freedom to actually get things done. As long as you have that discipline to get it done. So, um, what what is the company now? There's you three, mm-hmm. and then you've got. I noticed on the website there's some other people. I don't know if they're facilitators or if they're the ones interfacing with teachers. How does it how does it work? Well, so we have a couple of full time employees. So we have Jason Kleben, who's a application developer for us. Uh, we have uh, Patrick Rowan, who's a graphic designer who works with Cam. We have Char- Charity Stoudenrous, who was a teacher who in Oregon. Uh, she lives in Oregon. Uh, along the lines of this virtual company. And she used our product for three years. No way. And loved it. That's awesome. And basically called us up and said, you know, I love this. You know, I have an idea. Why don't you hire me to onboard teachers? This is what I'd love to do. And she's she's a, a rock star of rock star proportions. That's great. Um, Does she onboard remotely? Yeah. That's great. So yeah. she'll get on a, a Skype or a Hangout or whatever method, but take the teacher through how to use the technology and then what follow up have the teacher tried a few times and Absolutely. then answer questions yeah, yeah look at their reports with them teachers can call her she'll even pair teachers together where like hey you you were working on something like this and you know th- why don't you touch base with that teacher who used our ac- technology for this and such purpose how um, did you do it before her we didn't <laughs> Yeah, it makes sense. So right? it's a she had a good idea that 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 came into be so when you started putting in classrooms who was getting the teacher up and running who was it were you well, doing it we like were, local to the campus and you were talking with the teacher directly yeah we were um but we were um that was really early on and so they were all research schools so we were onboarding them as part of the research process okay but onboarding them now is totally different because they're distributed across as i said 50 states right yeah um so we can't we can't be there we, we'd spend our life you know um in planes but and it doesn't make sense for me because I'm full-time employed somewhere else. Right. I was going to say, you have another job too. Right. So, but we, you know, she does an incredible job onboarding them and we, you know, we've developed a lot of materials. So Yeah. And because the business came to be on the campus, does the school have a stake in the business or do they like sit on the board or how does that work? Yeah, they, they do. They have a small, um, you know, small stake in the company. Um, yeah. I mean, it yeah, seems right. Yeah, absolutely. They facilitate the creation and they gave you, Absolutely. Arguably some great tools to get it going. Absolutely. So how does that work? Do they basically hands off? Do they get involved? Are they here to help when you need it? Is it a partner or is it something that's behind you and it helped at one point and now it's Um, a responsibility? Well, I mean, I think that um, they were really behind us at one point and we sort of graduated right beyond that phase but they're certainly here to help. Like, you know, uh, Todd Keeler in our tech transfer office is always, I can have him on my cell phone. I'm going to drop by his office this afternoon. Um, you know, he's really great with setting up, you know, people for us to talk to and et cetera. And I mean, you know, it's really, we've, we've gotten a lot of help from WPI, which has been uh, really, really wonderful. And Jim Baum and, you know, um, a, a variety of people here. 
um, have been really great in the the TAN program, the Technology Advisory Network here that we were a part of when I was at WPI. And the goal ultimately is probably to graduate the company, right? To have you move on and have other companies incubating while you're going off to actually run the business. Absolutely. Now, one of the things we talked about before we started recording was the uh, standard response to a professor founder is to get the business launched and then remove them. Right. But, but you're still here in the driver's seat. So I know you wanted to touch on that a little bit. And and I'm not, I'm arguably, I don't know much about that side of it. So that's why I was asking about WPI too. Have you had pressure for that? Or is you just kind of did things differently and flipped the script? Um, nobody's trying to push me out that I know of. <laughs> you probably know. <laughs> if you hear something, <laughs> let me know, will you? Um, I think the, yes, the logic was in the past, get the professor as CEO out and replace him with, you know, 28-year-old MBA. I'm being a little bit facetious. Right. But I think the current thinking in deep technology companies, of which mine is one, um, is it's a lot easier to take somebody like me and turn me into a CEO than take someone who is a generic MBA and try to turn them into an innovator because they don't understand really how my, how the innovation really works. Yeah. And they're going to want to pivot. You know, I, I'm willing to pivot, but I only want to pivot when I think it's important to pivot. I'm playing a long, a long-term game. I'm not playing a short-term mm-hmm. game. And, you know, I don't want someone taking my baby out of my hands until I'm ready. I will take this company as far as I can. Yeah. And so far, I think, you know, by many measures, that's been pretty good. Yeah. So. Sometimes people bring in, the CEO-ish business type person to work alongside the innovator, right? Which is supposedly going to free up the innovator. Right. Uh, That doesn't always go as planned either though, because then sometimes you have different interests and one's trying to drive one way, one's trying to drive the other way and you know, who's supposed to be driving the ship. So that's probably not a way you're plus your, your team is not huge. You don't, you're not hundreds or thousands of people yet. You don't need somebody governing how to do all of that where you can still drive because what drives your company right now is the difference, is the product, right? It's what it can actually do in the classroom for kids. Mm-hmm. So that still comes down to the innovation and to driving that forward to making right. progress. Right. Yeah. And then, so what, you've got Inkits and then Ink Blotter. blotter. Yeah. Is there anything else coming? Is it, So Ink Blotter, going back to my earlier question, did that, was that always in the works or always in the plans or did that come about by seeing a need that you hadn't seen yet? And you were like, oh, we can adapt to that as well. Well, this is an interesting question, right? About being in real classrooms. On one hand, yes, the, the students are getting real-time support, but teachers also need to, when, when they're getting that um, assessment report, looking at, gee, this many number of my students are floundering, right? How do I help them all? You're one teacher, and in Oregon, you could have 50 kids. You're one 50. teacher. 50. Because you can have up to 50 kids in Oregon. Five zero. Right. So how does the teacher help them? So, you know, just sitting around the whiteboard one day, we came up with the idea of an alerting dashboard that's governed by the same algorithms. And so the teacher's getting real-time alerts. And the teacher can decide how to have that displayed. So it could be individual students as they happen, mm-hmm. or it could be like, give me a class-wide alert. Tell me when this percentage of my class is floundering on this skill because I want to stop them. And that aspect has been completely transformative yeah. in terms of how teachers implement these next generation science standards. I can see that being game changing. It even can sound simple, but 
the ability to say the overwhelming percentage of the class is having a trouble with this. Let's just stop and right. start at this point again. Right. And that, I mean, well, I'll give you a perfect example. You know, we work very closely with a teacher named Nancy foot in Arizona. And uh, I remember uh, many years ago now getting a, an email from her saying, I'd like to talk to you about your software. And I thought, Oh no, I want to hear the bad news. Right. So I called her up and I said, you know, what, what did you want to tell me? And she said, I had no idea that students um, didn't know how to run controlled trials where they change only one thing at a time. She said, I thought that they were having difficulty interpreting data, but in fact, their data were not interpretable because they were confounded. She said, I, I had no idea what percentage of kids were actually having trouble, you know, collecting unconfounded data. So unless you have technology like ours, you're actually not going to be able to glean that. Well, it goes back to what you said earlier when you're onboarding new people. Just expect to read the mind and ask me what you don't know. Because that, and that, that's a problem in every walk of life. But all we can do without that data is infer, based on our own experiences, what we think is happening in that person's head. And that, that's, you know, that's... Right. And, you know, this is, we are in the era of accountability in education, uh, rightly or wrongly, and that's a separate conversation. But, you know, um, teachers have to provide measures of competency on these next generation science practices. So you don't want this to be a, pla a pass fail. You want it to be how well can they formulate questions? How well can they collect data? How well can they interpret data? How well can they write about those data once they have them? Mm -hmm. Those are different competencies, right? How well can they apply the math equations underlying science, which is a, a new thing being um, developed by the company, uh, not by me, actually, by Mike and Cammer really driving this aspect of it. Nice. And so what's interesting about that is that, you know, for accountability purposes, teachers need this. For funding purposes, for example, if under the Every Student Succeeds Act, which was the last thing President Obama enact, enacted before he left, um, Schools need to be able to demonstrate how they've used their funds from the government. Right. So this provides a perfect measure for districts to, you know, send into the state, the state to send into the Fed saying, this is exactly what we did. We, you know, use this science software and look how it moved the needle for many children, uh, some of whom are, you know, have left uh, the regular science classroom to go to a resource science classroom for special ed. And then moved back to the regular science classroom because they've used our stuff for six months. Back it, to the regular science classroom. I mean, sort this of is the, amazing. It's sort of the best case scenario for a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because right. the government has these grants to try to improve education. And you have to prove that you're using them. And by proving that you're using them and that it's moving the kids forward, you're making the innovations that make the education work better to right. then get the next grant to right. make the next piece of progress. So it... It's powerful. It's, it's really, I'm glad to see that that's happening, you know, because right. for a long time, education has been pretty stagnant right. and the whole e-tech firm or field in e-learning and all of that, that's how we came to know each other was through just the, the general feel of e-learning and trying to figure out, you know, what's next in tech and how can people learn better. I feel like, I feel like it started to get some real attention, you know, when, when higher ed started to get a little bit disrupted through the online mm -hmm. MOOCs and the things that were coming up. But I, I feel like it's cooled off a little bit where it's not, it, it was like, it was when edX came out and it, it was, 
talked about a lot in mainstream. And now it's probably seems like it's shrunk back down to the people that are actually innovating in the space and working in it that are doing it. But that makes it feel like there's not a lot happening if you're outside of it. So it's good to talk with people to know there's still there's still government programs that are looking into it because I think the government programs frees up the ability to work on the problem instead of the ability to chase the next funds, mm-hmm. which is correct. Yeah. So, and, and that's, that's what I want to believe is happening, especially in education where I've got young kids right. that are being educated. Yeah. And th- I mean, just a sidebar about MOOCs and a sidebar about online resources. I mean, that can be very democratizing and that's part of the rationale for them. However, you know, if, if someone is unmotivated as a learner, you know, are they really going to sit there and no, listen? No, absolutely not. not. For I sure, mean, no. The uh, what's their completion rate? Rate of completion in MOOCs is is ab- abysmal. Yeah, it's abysmal. Um, I think they're. It was a financial. It, it was a financial decision as well because it made higher education cheaper. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, you know, this is part of a longer conversation, but um, I was never really that. Um, let's see, positive about MOOCs because. If you really want to train, you know, science literacy writ large, there's going to be people who are going to not uh, do well in a MOOC. Oh, for sure. Right. For sure. Yeah. Now, technology that can gather what students are doing in real time, react to what they're doing in real time. That's, you know, that's fundamentally different from a MOOC. Yeah. Well, people are different. So you need to have solutions that work for different types of learners. I mean, that's that's one of the greatest flaws we have in the education system right. is it teaches one side away right hoping that everybody will keep up so you obviously have really bright people that are left behind Mm -hmm. as well as really really bright people that are struggling i mean it's it's different reasons right you don't even know what they are right Right. it's just it's it's tough though because y'all you flip the script and ask well then what's the solution Mm -hmm. and that's a tough answer people don't have the answer right kind of like with healthcare. yeah we're not doing it right so what's the answer i don't know right (laughs) That's, that's a big question it's complicated so uh you mentioned a couple of times, and I want to go back to, you're now at Rutgers in living in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and you and the team work remotely from Oregon to New Jersey to Massachusetts to Washington, and you're still a professor. Mm-hmm. So how, what does that mean? That's a lot to balance. That's, you got to be pretty busy. Um, yeah, I think I have 100,000 unanswered emails right now. <laughs> Hundred thousand. I'm not being fatigued. Just hit delete. It's like a hundred thousand. Um, so you know that's a little bit of a challenge. Well, presumably, I know that you've got kids, and I know that you've got a social life. So life keeps moving along, along with businesses, right? So how are you doing? How am I managing? Two jo- well, not just how you're managing. I mean, how are you doing with two jobs plus a life to lead? You know, how do you okay. how do you how do you internalize that? How do you personalize it and make make it work for you? Well, so. Um, how do I make it work for me? That, that's a really good question. Most people, if I could answer that question, that would probably be the best (laughs) business model. Well, first of all, the team that I have that, that we have is not to be believed. I mean, they are the dream team. I, I consider myself so lucky to have this team. Um, and I'm able to offload a lot of things to Cameron, to Mike, to charity who, you know, I mean, I'm a full-time professor, mm-hmm. so they need to handle right. certain things for me. And then there'll be certain things where they say, you know what, we need your eyes on this. And, you know, I, I also, because we have this weekly meeting, 
I know when I have to scratch a little deeper and go, well, wait, what did you base that on? It's wonderful you, you have the trust too. Right. You have to have that trust. You can't move forward if you don't have that. So I, I offload a lot of work um, to people who are incredibly competent, mm -hmm. really, like incredibly competent. And um, so there's that. And the other part is I, this is my passion, right? Right. This is, you know, this is my legacy, really. And when all is said and done, this will be my, this and the three kids that I produced are the mark that I made. You know, I'm using that in quotes because, you know, I, I didn't uh, cure cancer. But, uh, you know, if we could teach every student, middle school and a high school student, how to do scientific inquiry in a really deep way, we would have done something very significant. Well, Johnny, the one struggling from our conversation like an hour ago, Johnny, by getting the help he needs, might proceed where Johnny could be that bright guy we were talking about that gets left behind. If Johnny doesn't get left behind, Johnny might cure cancer. Right. And, and that, that theoretically could happen because of the product helping him right. be taught properly by his teacher who didn't know he needed extra help in that way. And that's why I love talking to people that run businesses because we're not all working on cancer, but you don't know the ripple effect. And if you're just doing what you do as the best you can, you're going to make that, that dent, that mark, and maybe on society or maybe just on something that one day marks society. Right. Yeah. I think that that's, I feel very uniquely, I mean, uniquely is a funny word, but the combination of my background and where I think I'm strong, uh, I think makes me very well suited for what I've done. Uh, you know, so. yeah, and it's, but it's still, it's funny, it, it, it can't know. be easy to juggle the the family and two jobs two arguably full-time jobs. Do you employ any strategies to do so? Are you a strict scheduler or have you built the flexibility into both the, say, I don't know how it works, contract with Rutgers or the way that you, the way that your teaching schedule is there, plus the way that you've designed apprentice so that it can operate around the way that you want to lead your life? And if that question isn't clear, I can tell you what I mean. Yeah. Well, so, you know, most universities have an arrangement with professors that they can consult one day a week. So, and there's a, a recognition that, you know, that's really beneficial for, uh, to keep yourself current, to work on real world problems, to involve students in, you know, to keep you fresh for students. So I adhere by that rule, mm -hmm. right? But I also spend a lot of time, you know, talking with Mike and Cam, um, you know, almost daily, really, about things. Hey, I had an idea. Hey, what'd you think of this? Huh, what happened in that school today? And, you know, I could be driving. I commute 40 hours, of 40 minutes to, um, for, sorry, 40 miles, 40 miles to work each way. And so I spent a lot of time just talking with them, talking with Charity. Mm -hmm. What happened in the school today? You know, huh, why do you think that is? Set up a call with the teacher. I want to talk to them. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that I do to make the platform better um, that impact both the research, that impact the product. Um, so everything, I think, dovetails really well together. That being said, it's an incredibly busy life. It has to be, too, because, uh, again, I'm outside of the EDU environment, so I don't know, but... You've always been a research professor too, which means you have a number of research projects going on at any time, right? And that's that's like real research, quantifiable research. Whereas some teachers do not. They teach a subject, right? They go into a classroom and they just they teach right. what they teach and that's the end of their responsibility. Am I wrong in thinking that the research is additional on top of teaching students? That's extra work? Um well, are you wrong? I mean, you know, 
writing grants is very arduous. That's a, I mean, that's what, it's grants. another thing that takes up time. Yeah, you need grants right? to get research dollars to do the research. Mm-hmm. Um, so all told, I, I don't know if I would be if if it would be accurate for me to say I spend more time. Uh, working than professors who only teach because you know that's well, it depends what, how they teach and what how, how they, they prepare teach. yeah that's yeah. that's not what I mean I'm not comparing better or worse I'm just saying do you spend time in classroom teaching students oh absolutely so arguably it would be comparable to someone who is a non-research professor that's what I'm trying to figure out is the I'm trying to figure out if you have the same 24 hours in a day as everybody else how are you structuring it to balance the company the full-time professor gig and life outside of that right Right. Yeah. And, and is it you play it by ear week by week or do you have a structure that helps oh, no, you I have a structure. to govern it all? Yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty structured person. Um, but by that, you know, I kind of wake up at the same time every day and I kind of go to bed at the same time every day. And I, you know, I always eat lunch at my desk. I often eat dinner at my desk. But, you know, it's a rare day, you know, a handful of times a month, I would say that I eat lunch and dinner at my desk. But no, that's that's not such a, a sacrifice. No, um, it's it's not even that odd today's day. Exactly. Yeah. Right. What what do your kids think about the businesses? What are they? How dig? How deep do they go into understanding what it is you do? Are they more? Uh, do they more identify you as the founder CEO or the professor? I think they think of me as a professor, um, but I think they you know they know I have a company and whatever. So I don't know how deeply they understand what I do. Um, maybe a little bit more now, you know, my youngest is turning 20, so I don't have children at home, you know, so that, that helps a little bit. Do either of them share your interests? Like would, would this legacy ever go that route or do they have different career? Yeah. So I have three, uh, 29, 24 and almost 20. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to say that I, I don't foresee that happening, but you never know. Mm -hmm. Stranger things have happened. Sure. Right. Um, I mean, the thing about learning a learning company is that everybody's learned something. So on, on one level, most people can relate to it. Wow. You know, Hey, I had to learn. I remember some of us or most of us have always struggled learning something or mm-hmm. other. Right. So they're kind of like, Oh, that's kind of neat. I mean, most people think what we do is pretty neat because they have learned something and have struggled to learn something. Yeah, I have. Right? And I, I often think about stuff I've struggled with when I was younger. And if I could just go back and, I mean, it sounds corny, but if I could just go back and ask and not be worried about raising your hand or, you know, be concerned with that, then it wasn't something that I was hindered by, uh, meaning like I didn't have any disability and or that's something that I couldn't learn. I just might've had questions I didn't ask because I didn't want to be the kid asking the questions. But, you know, if you accumulate all those instances over your entire schooling career, you could probably move forward a lot faster if you didn't have to worry about that and you could actually get the questions answered. Yeah. And recognizing that learning is hard work. It takes work, right? We used to have this kind it of, does. you know, a lot of people have this view, like you're smarter, you're not. Well, no, it's not that easy. Right. But the know? school does make kids feel that way too. The way, the way it's structured in today's day, where, like we said, it teaches one way and everyone has to try and toe that line. So some kids end up feeling dumb that might be quite bright just because they're, that's not how they learn. They have a different aptitude or, you know, they're, they're the next Van Gogh instead of being. Right. Or they're, they're really processing something different. Right. Mm-hmm. So think about like when you're asking them comprehension, comprehension questions, but they're really low level recall questions. And, you know, they're reading a paragraph and then they have to answer these very low level questions when they could actually be making really deep inferences, which is a much higher level. Sure. Um, yeah. Task. Yeah. And, I don't, I, I don't obviously know to the depth that you do, but I can see 
it just in my kids' elementary classrooms, I can see the way that that they're lucky enough to have had great teachers that really care. But there's there's the curriculum that the teacher has to teach, and then there's the issues or the where places that your kid excels, and you can see that where they're stronger, where they're not as strong. But you can't necessarily fill the gap, and the teacher can't either. She's she or he is willing to work on it, and at home, you know, we can work on it, but. Essentially, you either catch up to that one thing, whether or not it's relevant to your kid, or, or you're left behind on it. That's just the way it's going to go. And that's kind of disheartening. Well, that's why this uh, software is so useful for teachers, because they're like, wow, 70% of my class are struggling at this? Stop the class yeah. in real time. And they, they love it. Stop I'm it. sure they do, because I have yet to meet a teacher who doesn't seem to care. It's more they're up against something that they can't push back against meaning that the whole system and you know MCAS and like you said bigger discussion or different discussion but there's a whole system in place and that's the system that gives them their job they have to do it but that's not the way they would do it if left to their own right yeah and that's that's what made me interested in e-learning to begin with just ways to facilitate better or more diverse learning of the same materials to make to make learning more fun for people. Cause I didn't realize till I was older, I was a typical kid that was fairly bright. School didn't really interest me because it wasn't, there was never really a challenge there. I'm, I'm talking at the lower levels, you know, getting into college and stuff, there was plenty of challenge, but um, so it wasn't that interesting. And, and I didn't like, I thought I didn't like learning. I love learning, but it wasn't until I found challenges and, and really got to, I feel like I got the challenge later in life and it would have been fun to be challenged from an earlier, from an earlier point. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It's only, I don't know how to do that though, but that's where you guys come to, <laughs> to be as a company. Right. Right. So in running the company, right. So you've been doing it for a number of years now. Do you have, this is something I like to ask everyone. What would you say you didn't expect? Like, what would you say was an aha or a something you didn't see coming in regards to running a business? And mine, I'll just tell you, mine was people. It's really difficult to interface with and to develop people harder than you would think. People don't just do whatever you want and they can't read your mind. And there's more work to developing a good team than I thought going into things. So, so the question is what's surprising about running a business? Um, I think how hard it is, how hard it is to, you know, get a business off the ground, you know, and, that that was surprising to me. And I feel like I've done some hard things in my life, but this has really been the hardest thing that I've done. Because there's no really off the ground, right? You don't just get off the ground once and now you're flying with no turbulence and everything's going to be perfect. There's ups, there's downs, there's challenges. There's, you know, there's right. that, that's one um, thing that comes up with everybody again is you have to learn basically how to continue starting your business constantly because there's always the ups and downs and the, and the challenges and, um, right. And I, especially when it's a digital, digital resources, and there's a ton of people producing digital resources, some of which are good and some of which are terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, so you really have to be constantly knowing what's happening, what's coming down the pike. Right. Um, not just that, but you have to have the mental fortitude to keep getting back up when, yeah. when something either didn't yeah. go right or the market changed, it's, it's completely something independent of your company, but now you have to switch something or pivot that you didn't expect to do. Right. And, and knowing when going. to pivot. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, we interview a lot of teachers and, you know, 
a lot of teachers say, oh, it would be great if we had this, it would be great if you had that, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you can't add absolutely every feature because for, then your, your product won't be a cohesive product. Mm -hmm. You need to scale it, right? And that scalability has to do with the core, what are the core features that a large percentage of the pop population are going to want. Right. And that's, that's not a trivial thing, right? Right. What else do you have on your radar? What else do I have on my radar? Hmm. Like, do you think you'll be a professor for a long time to come? Do you have other aspirations with the company? What, you have more products that you want to roll out underneath the Apprentice well, umbrella? Um, you know, the funny thing about being a, and maybe, maybe academics don't feel this way. Maybe, you know, I'm unique in this respect. Probably not. But I sometimes think, oh, well, that, I guess th those are my ideas. I don't think I have an another good another good idea in me. And then something clicks, and I go, "Wow, that I, I think that's a really good idea. <laughs> I think I have a good idea." Um, so we we also have patents in eye tracking, and uh, that I developed here at WPI with uh, Ermal Toto, who works here at WPI, and he was a former graduate student. And when I went to Rutgers, he decided to stay here, and um, so one of the things one might think about as technology gets more and more sophisticated is integrating, you know, the eye tracking with, you know, inkits because how valid an assessment is it if the students are not even looking where they need to be looking. Right. Or at the screen at all. Or at the screen at all. Yeah. So right. what would you use the webcam to track the eye movement? Yeah, you could do that. And then just how else would you do it? Well, you could use an eye tracker, which is a little piece of equipment. Um, that would track their eyes. And then what our patent does, our patent talks about is, you know, um, if you know Johnny doesn't understand convection and he gets into this, what we call a micro world where there's some text on convection and then there's a simulation and he's skipping over the section on convection, you could say, hey, Johnny, you should really read that and then go click on the play button and watch the convection currents form. Mm -hmm. To, un to help him develop what we call a mental model, a rich mental model of what happens. Right. So then it's just monitoring your, basically the eye tracker understands the way the page was created visually. So it knows the, yes. the, the way you need to work through the page. So if you're not spending a certain amount of time on one place, it'll be like, hey, John. Well, yeah, it's, that's a proxy, right? That's a proxy for it. Because when people are doing deep processing, they tend to un, uh, slow down at spots where there's really rich causal information in science. So I've done a number of empirical studies that show this, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if they're not, if you know they don't have that prior knowledge and they don't slow down at all, you could probably prompt them to do it. Yeah, should, why and not? Prompt right? them to look at the simulation. I mean, you know, when you have a digital book, people don't really know that you're supposed to use the diagram, you know, uh, kind of in tandem with the text. Even, you know, students looking at a book don't know that. Right. Well, that's another thing with the software is you can get a lot, you can get a lot more tangible than you can with a book. The book, it's really easy to fall out of, but you can keep things moving with the software. So that's got to be helpful too. Right. It's got to be tracking the right things. It's got to be tracking the right, at the right level. Where do you pull the curriculum to use in the software? Is it? We develop it all, but. No um, kidding. Yeah. Everything we built is uh, handmade. Um, by us. So um, does the school system have to buy into that curriculum too, or is it there, is there like a licensing that makes it fair? Well, we, we don't have a curriculum. We have a, a set of, a, of um, like assessment modules, right, that, that is supplementary to the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So if the school has adopted the next generation science standards or various state frameworks that look a lot like the next generation science standards, ours is designed as a standalone to go as an assessment with any curriculum 
And can the teacher create assessments within it? So if there was a um, no, curriculum really. they're teaching? Not really. I mean, you know, people often ask that question, but the truth of the matter is very few teachers want to do that. So is it grade-based? Like, how do you know what to be what to be feeding the children in order to address their skills? Is it based on what a, an eighth grader is learning at that time in, in approved curriculum? Right. So, you know, there's these standards called the Next Generation Science Standards and the competencies they're expected mm -hmm. to have mastered or achieved. And then we're logging what they're doing in real time. And then our algorithms um, are scoring them on those competencies as to whether they're competent or not. Yeah. Okay. So it's, that's a clear way for me to understand it where it's, I, I wasn't sure if you could actually wrap your software around the curriculum. So throughout the whole year with, with any given day, you could be sort of applying this method where the teacher's getting, you know, updates that the kid needs help or if it's coming at a, a, a testing phase or a phase where you're finding yeah. out what they know. So teachers are using it when it's most practical for them to use it and most useful. So sometimes that's before the unit. Sometimes it's the end of the unit. Sometimes that's for MCAS prep. Yeah. And when so, they can plan to be able to jump in and right. monitor how or the kids are working. Or sometimes it's right? halfway through the unit. So they're doing a unit on density. Okay. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to figure out exactly who needs the most help, what help they need, et cetera. I'm going to, you know, give this to kids to remediate. Um, you know, we've improved state scores uh, for many schools where they say we changed nothing but added your platform and our scores went up 20% on the standardized science test. Just right? because they can dig in and find out where the kids actually need the extra need work. The help, yeah. I mean, that, that makes complete sense. If you just uncover where the weakness is, you can address right. it. I mean, our software has also been um, shown empirically to... Uh, to transfer, which is really the brass ring in learning, right? You want to be able to teach something to somebody that they can transfer to the next thing. So we've shown very robust transfer even 180 days later. So, you know, we're training them in one topic of science with Rex, our digital agent. Mm -hmm. We drop Rex out and then we test them, say, 40 days later, 80 days later, you know, 120 days later, 170 or 180 days later and show that students still know the practices that they learned in this one context and move them. We've moved them to a different science topic and they can still apply them because so we taught them something. Right. Yeah. They're getting a handle on their thinking as yes. opposed to just the information. They're figuring, you know, you're teaching a man to fish, right? Yeah. You're teaching them how to uh, conduct inquiry, which well, is that what shows, we want. These are the practices of science that we want students to know. And that shows real promise. That's got, that has to feel good from, you know, from your, from yeah. your seat, that's got to feel good to see that the, it's not just helping a kid pass a test, but it's helping that kid understand information and to process it and to, to move forward Absolutely. as, as a, you know, a better version of themselves because knowledge is power. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's, that's I me. Mean, that's a, that's a feel good legacy. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Uh, we're over an hour. It goes, it goes fast. It's always like a time warp. Do you have, do you have anything else do you want to talk about? I don't want to hold you all day. Um, like, no, I guess, you know, just in the realm of, you know, what are you willing to, you know, to do for a business? Sure. And I was just on a panel uh, last week at the U.S. De US Department of Education. And, you know, they asked about, oh, you know, how do you know? And, you know, how do you decide if you're willing to do this? Or, at, you know, I answered, I was the only woman on the panel. Um, and I, I would say, regardless of whether you're a woman or a man, but um, know what you're willing to sacrifice and know what you're not willing to sacrifice mm -hmm. and make your decisions accordingly. That's just good life lesson. 
you know, uh, from the elders. <laughs> it is. Um, that can apply. I mean, that applies to more than just starting a business too, right? Because there's a lot of people that sacrifice quite a bit for uh, a standard nine to five. And I don't, I don't mean to put anybody in a box because I don't, first of all, I don't think everybody should be an entrepreneur or found a business. It's not for everybody. Some people excel at doing things that create bigger pictures and companies. And by no means am I saying entrepreneurs a step up. It's just a different way to walk your life. But if you do know what you're willing to sacrifice, a lot of people, what I mean is a lot of people sacrifice different aspects of their life for a regular job with entrepreneurship. I think you do have to go into it knowing where you're willing to make those sacrifices, but you get to decide too. You can carve out how it's going to make those sacrifices and how it'll affect your life. And I think that's really empowering right. that, that to me, that's always been one of the, the special things about owning a business is yeah, I'm, I'm going to be available while I'm on vacation. I'm going to, you know, but it's not that I can't take a vacation. It's just that I don't disappear. I never, I never right. disappear for two weeks. I might be on vacation, but I'm going to be available if something happens. But by that exact same token, I'm at all my kids practices. I'm at the Cub Scout meetings. I'm present. You know, I get home and my phone's gone until they go to bed, which at which point I could work till 1am if I want, I can get back to work. And I'm not saying work doesn't come into personal life because it definitely does. But I have very firm grounds on where it's not allowed. And I couldn't do that if I was answering to somebody else. Right. You know Absolutely, what I mean? Yeah. That, that, so that's one way that I find, yes, I make a lot of sacrifices, but I also have tremendous benefit to my life and the way that I want to lead it because I can design that story. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to live a nine to five life. That's not really for me. That's not who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I have a mind that's very, very active. Like I, when I'm in a period of extreme sort of trying to work on a problem, uh, I go to bed with a pencil and paper. I wake up in the night, um, write notes. Oh yeah. I do send, that too. I send myself emails. Uh, because, you know, when I'm in a highly creative time, I, my mind is always working on something. Yeah. Right? You don't seem like you are or could be nine to five either. That's what I was digging at with some of the questions about the multiple jobs and balancing it with life. And it seems like you wear all the hats all day long. And there's a sort of a dance where sometimes you're a professor and then between probably one one part of professor during this day and the next professor part there's the ceo that's that's doing her duties from here to here and then mom at this time and right. there's a lot that gets stitched together over that time and that's how i am too and that's right that some people would hate that absolutely hate that because it's too it's too crazy it's too much of a dance but for me I, I i i love the freedom that it entails yeah i love that and i also am able to say to somebody you know i have some great students uh, rachel dickler and amy adair and mariel o'brien and I'll say to them, hey, I need some intel on this because I'm, I have an idea for a proposal. Find, do a Google search and find me this. Mm -hmm. And then I might say, okay, you know, read these things and do a little pre-processing for me. And, you know, they might give me something and then I, I want to read about it. Um, and that's great to get that pre-processing and, you know, get different people's perspective on things, you know? For sure, for but sure. You have to know, you have to sort of know where you're looking. You can't say, oh, just go to this journal and open it up and start reading stuff, you know? For sure. So the thing is you always have to have your arms around what's going on in the world, especially now with AI. Uh, you know, we're in an AI-based business. So with AI, you have to really have your mind on what's going on in AI. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard to get a 
bead on where uh, AI is because very different prominent people have a very different opinion of even where it exists at this point and right. whether or not it exists right. or when it's going to exist, right? right? So, and how you're going to define it because right. some people, when they talk about AI, they're just talking about like an intelligent machine or uh, something that can, can change based on a user's performance, whereas some are talking about a sentient being, right? right. That's right. not the same thing. <laughs> right. Uh, that, that's, a, that's another whole interesting thing. But before or if we go there, you mentioned having these great people to access. And that's something that I think one area, we're, pr we're pretty remote as well, where most people are in different locations. And I think it's great for 80% of things. The one thing I miss, uh, and I find other ways to get it done, but I miss the in-person brainstorming. Does mm -hmm. that, do you feel that you have that because you're, because of the campus and um, maybe seeing, you know, Cam, Mike, and the, the people regularly enough, do you feel like you have that? Because I, I do feel Sometimes without planning it, it's nice to just grab people in a room and, and a whiteboard and start talking about an issue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes, I miss that part um, of the whiteboard and the conversation. But I think with us, because we worked so closely for so many years before I moved, mm -hmm. you know, you can kind of pick up right where you know, you left off, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, for sure. Um, you just so missed that spontaneity of pulling everyone in a room and doing yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. So you can you can kind of do it now where, like, we'll have everybody on a screen and you can see faces and right. be engaged. And it's it's way better than it used to be. Like, it, that's better than a conference call. It's certainly better. But right. I still prefer, if possible, this. Like, I can see you. We look. Right. We can look at each other and have the conversation. And that that conversation can go a lot deeper into entirely new places than when you're a thousand miles away. It's right. just, it's, it's well, still not draw, the same. I'm constantly drawing and writing when I'm talking. Mm -hmm. And, um, I've not surprisingly not done that in this conversation, but, um, that's maybe because we talked a little bit before about the kinds of things we were going to talk about, but I'm always drawing and boxes and, you know, pushing things out into diagrams um, and that's what I miss is the ability to do that. But I sometimes do that and then I like, you know, scan it and send it or <laughs> show it on my phone and say, okay, this is what I'm talking about. What do you think? Yep. Right? I, I do it too for the poor people that I send it to trying to decipher it. But I, but I think if deciphering it alone, I'll never do it. But once we can talk through together, it, it sort of helps, helps me to communicate what I'm thinking where words might not, might not get us there. So we're describing with the boxes and the I don't just take like neat notes. I, it's like a mind map. And I don't mean that in a fancy, beautiful, uh, beautiful mind kind of way. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a dump onto a piece of paper of whatever I'm thinking about and how they, things might be connected. And it might make, but it ends up making more sense when you can step back right. and you're see the whole thing. Using, using the paper to offload working memory. Yeah. Right. So you do the same way? Absolutely. Because yeah. not everybody does. Some people take really neat notes. And I've always, I've always been slightly envious of that, but I never understood like that's just, that's not how it comes out of my head. Right. And I mean, I think the people who take really neat notes, you know, no slam against them, but I think they're kind of, they're putting notes down so that later they can do the high level, higher level reasoning, mm. or maybe not the high level reasoning. They're sort of copying verbatim, which right. is not copying verbatim does not instill deep thinking. No, right? we no. know that. Right. They could just be a different thinker too. A lot of assessment focuses on rote recall, which, you know, just because you can recall something doesn't mean you know it. Right? No, no, certainly Especially not. Especially in science, you know. Right. And there's different types of thinking too, where Absolutely. I'm, I've always been more creative and innovative. I don't mean those in cliche words to mean better. It's just, I'm, I'm 
I'm a good idea person as where some people are far better at implementation and they're better at wrapping that idea in reality than, than I am. And that's a different kind of brain, different kind right. of thinker. Well, I think, you know, in intelligence is more, a more current definition of intelligence is what are you able to do with what you know? And if you think about it that way, then you're a highly intelligent person. Well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> <laughs> at least I get to talk to highly intelligent people. That's, that's the fun part for me. I get to hear from all kinds of people and with, with very, very different uh, walks of life and very different backgrounds and hear how it all comes together. And there's, like I've said twice since we've been talking, there's always, I don't want to say always, but always so far, there's always these, these lessons that come back, which go around that whole failure and sort of picking yourself back up, uh, not related to the failure, but there's the, don't be afraid to mess up because you have to mess up and, and break a few eggs, but also the, the bumpy ride. It's a lot of people that have never run a business, I think, toil over getting the perfect business plan and the perfect idea and figuring out everything perfect in order to start their business. And that's why most of them never do. They never start the business. And if they just knew what we've all learned the hard way that just take that step, get things moving because your business plan is going to fall apart. Uh, even if it works mm -hmm. the next year, it's going to fall apart and you need a new, you need a new idea or, you know, an adaptation to what it was that you're doing to move that business forward. And you just have to get the momentum and start rolling forward to, to get that move. That's, I don't think that people hear that enough. I think it's, it's almost, if you're, if you're the, the person with an idea and you're Googling how to start a company or how do I, you know, own a business or any of that, almost all the information you're going to get is about your business plan and these, these yeah. do these five things to, to start your business. Helpful, right. It, yeah. yeah. Almost. And almost none of the advice comes from people that have founded or, or run businesses, which is, like I have a, I have a, in my education, I have a background in entrepreneurship too. And I, I had a great education, but you do have to think that 90% of my education came from people who were never entrepreneurs. And that's why it's really different to, to, to talk to people who maybe don't have any of that, um, that background in reading the books about what they're supposed to do, but they ran a $10 million, you know, multinational corporation that, and they have a lot of good advice to give that, right. that might not, you might not find it in books and right. you probably won't. And that, that's been like really, really eye opening and freeing to me. And I want to, I want to help people get that. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I think you're right. And if you asked 50, I think I said this earlier, but if you ask 50 people uh, how to proceed, you get 50 different, um, you know, ideas about how to proceed or mm -hmm. what's the most important thing, right? What's the most important thing? Uh, that's what I found really fascinating about business because it's a really ill-defined problem. Sure, because I can tell you the most important thing. But that comes from me. <laughs> yeah. No, but that comes from me. I mean, the most important thing would have been from my experience in my company, which is wholly unrelated to you and what you're doing. And that's why you have to, sure, I mean, talk to as many people as you can, get, get advice. But I think rather than, uh, I've, just because I've seen it so many times, I went to school at a, at a school based in entrepreneurship. I went, so there's, you know, a cohort of people and all of them with an interest in entrepreneurship or they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't have gone to, to that place, right? But- I'd say 95% weren't and aren't entrepreneurs and don't own businesses. So I have to think that the, if that group is still held back and not moving forward, then the people who aren't already self-identifying as want to be entrepreneurs or aren't taking that step, they, 
there's a lot of walls that are self-imposed just because you're waiting for doing what all the people tell you you're supposed to do. Well, and I also, just as you're saying that, I'm thinking about um, some people who want to be entrepreneurs because they, like their capital E, they want to be entrepreneurs. You know, I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. I saw a need. There was interest. There was funding. It was interesting to me. You know, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this, right? So when you asked about what's next, right, it's not like I'm going to go off and start, you know, a yoga studio because I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to make this product, you know, scalable, mm -hmm. and I want it to be in the hands of a large number of teachers and students because this is the need, this is my legacy, and this is the thing that I wanted to do. But that's different from being just a, not just a, an, an entrepreneur who is, you know, business plan after business plan executing, right? Oh, right. now I own a restaurant. Now I own a this. Now I own a that. Right. Now I do to that. them, the sport is just the creating of the right. business. That's not, that's not what I'm about. No, you're more about, about the value that the company provides. Right. Having you know, existed. So social, social entrepreneurship too, which I think, you know, is important um, with respect to, you know, user base. And we have a very, very large user base now. I'm glad um, that social entrepreneurship is getting getting more of the attention it deserves. People are starting to think through their companies and the impact it has as well as the good that it can do. Right. Because, you know, uh, impact is important. I mean, let's think, let's think about, you know, K-12 education is, can, has the potential to be the great equalizer, right? Mm -hmm. so, or, or it can uh, hinder right. entire generations. Right. So when you think about it that way, it's a very, very important uh, aspect um, of our lives. Everybody goes to school. It's a huge, aspect. and, and I mean, look at the amount of years that's dedicated to it. I mean, it's a, it's a, all of your formative years are spent being educated. Right. I mean, not that education stops, but I mean, formally sitting in a classroom, it's not even your choice. There's right. a law, you have to go there. Right. That, so if we're going to mandate it, but we're not going to optimize it, like you're saying, we can, we can go a number of different yeah. ways here. Shouldn't we go the best way for everybody to move right. the society that's forward? Right. right. I mean, just makes sense. You, you touched on something that uh, I like to talk about. A lot of times people start businesses based on seeing an opportunity and they fill that opportunity. And that's kind of the entrepreneur you're talking about. I can make a buck here. I could do this there. Other people start a business based on their passions or their uh, something they're very, very interested in, like a yoga studio, someone who just wants to teach yoga because of what yoga has done for their life. You're lucky enough to tap the both, right? I mean, do you, do you, uh, have you internalized how lucky it is that there's an opportunity, there's some government-backed agencies that are willing to help bring it to life, and it's something that you love? Absolutely. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Right? What's a SWOT analysis, right? They call this in business, right? Strength, weaknesses, opportunity, threats. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I, I think that I am extremely, I don't believe in luck, first of all. That's just a philosophical statement. Um, but I consider myself really fortunate to be at this point in education and AI at this point in my career, at this point in my life, mm -hmm. to have met the partners that I have in my business, Mike and Cam, and um, to have taken on the team that I have to do the work that I do. I mean, what could be better than that? That's short, awesome. Short of being a rock star. You know, being a rock star might be a really good idea. Yeah, or athlete. <laughs> Top level athletes are oh, pretty good way to live work. too. That's too much work. Uh, you know, I don't want to spend that much time in the gym. Well, it depends but. on which sport you pick. I mean, golf's not an entirely bad way to live. You know, you, 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 tour the, you tour the world, you play golf. A lot of people pay a lot of money to play golf. Right. It, it depends. But if, yeah, if you're a hockey player, that hurts. Yeah, it's right. going to take a toll yeah. on, your, on your life. I think um, 
unless you have something else you want to dig into, that's a great place to end it on how fortunate some of us are. I mean, there's no, I agree. There's no luck behind it. You know, we didn't walk into it. Well, there's a little luck, but I don't, you know, I mean, I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in fate. I don't tend to believe in those things. What I believe in is me. I believe in me. The greatest predictor of my future is me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you take that on, that can be, very heavy too, because it's like, oh, am I doing this right? Am I doing that right? What should I do? And then you can perseverate on that, Yep. you know, get a little neurotic about it. Or a lot neurotic. Uh, or a lot neurotic, you know, everybody keep their comments to themselves about that. <laughs> but, but, you know, if you really believe that you are the one who has the reins of your own life, and then you make the decision every day to steer it this way and steer it that way. Yeah. It's extremely empower- empowering. It's very empowering. And I, th- I, I feel bad for a lot of people that don't seem to get that, get that. or internalize that. Like people with the victim mentality, the, I, I, you see it all the time. And yeah, I, I never really get into it with people because you, know, you are who you decide to be. But the choosing to be successful, like you're saying, that also means owning everything else. And if you're wasting time or you're wasting this or you're doing the wrong thing and you can't look at yourself and own it and say, I got to change that or I got to do this differently or I got to do something better. That that's the discipline and the, the self reflection that most people, I don't want to say most people, but a lot of people that I'm right. familiar with don't want to do because it's the hard work. It's the, it's the looking at the parts of yourself that you might not like Right. And then coming to terms with them and saying, which ones can I address? How do I want to, how do I want to address that? You know, there's a big difference between people that design who they want to be and they become those people or the people who sit there and say, people should like me for who I am or, you know, uh, this people don't change. I am what I am. As soon as I start to hear those arguments, I don't need to continue on because I already know where you stand. You know? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not silly to imagine your future Wikipedia page, you know, imagine, imagine where you want to go and then go there. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and look at the people that are, that inspire yeah. you. What do they do? What are some, what are some things about them that you know is a thing they're doing that you admire and you're not doing right. Whether or not that's discipline or whether or not it's related to your family or your fitness or your business or whatever it might be, right. you know, fill that gap in. And stuff's going to happen, but you can say, okay, well, the next time this happens, I'm going to know how to circumnavigate it. I mean, you know, yeah, and that's what's important. You don't have to be perfect. We're not, you know, I'm not talking about fulfilling a Tony Robbins type destiny, but if you're not willing to take a hard look at yourself and, and move forward, then there's only you to blame when you're, when a year goes by and nothing has changed, you're, Correct. you're in the same position. And that's a lot. That's, that's not going to get you owning a business. That's not going to move you towards your goals. Even if your business, you're you know, owning a business is not your goal, but if your goal is to be more active with your kids or to be more fit or to move forward in your position, your job and whatever it is that you do, if you're not willing to look at why you're not, then you're not going to. Right. If it's, well, I deserve it. Someone should promote me. Someone should do this. Someone should do that. And I, there's a lot of that out there. And I just, it, it doesn't work. That does not work. No. Yes. All right. On that note, <laughs> 